Might be a good idea to invite God into this meeting with the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Oh, look out, look out. <laughs> we will be going through a presentation on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. We have a plethora of time from this podium today because this is a celebration of those, you know, it's not who all came here and uh, all that sort of thing. It's, it's kind of like the last man standing retreat of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want to mention that this is quite uh, a national gathering now. You know, we pull them in from Montana, from Chicago, Illinois, the birthplace of, no, I won't go there, oh, <laughs> of corruption and politics. <laughs> Clean that one up. <coughs> I, I want to welcome all those people who traveled from afar, and all you that suffered through the 210 freeway <laughs> coming out here on a Friday afternoon, uh, the largest parking lot in uh, the East Valley. The steps are very critical in our growth, and preferably I would suggest that you take them with a sponsor. If you're anything like I was, I had never cracked a dictionary in my life, but I knew the meaning of every fucking word there was <laughs> without ever looking it up. That's how confused I was when I got here. <laughs> Our first presenter, I've known, well, We became acquainted in some of the valley meetings a long time ago when we were young, full of gum, you know. <laughs> and uh, we both, both prided ourselves on our, uh, on our uh, success and looks. And we both had the same thing in mind. We walked into AA, like most of the guys that come into AA, they walk into AA with their umbilical cord in one hand, their dick in the other, and they don't care which one they plug in or both. Huh? When you got 30 days sober, you know you're going to die without a little taste of that uh, pussy. Mm-hmm. And we competed a lot in that area. Now, I'm not saying it's uh, good to work your program through lust and prayer. But if that's what you had to do and you didn't go out and get drunk afterwards, you're still here, God bless, you know. But we all learn at our own pace. We have put up with each other for about the first 20 years in competition 
from the floor of Los An or Alcoholics Anonymous. Never got into a fistfight. Never really said nasty things about each other when we were together. You know, <laughs> <maybe. laughs> but somewhere along when they started the rafters, Burbank was heavily involved in that, and Ted was involved in that from the whatever those groups are out in the valley. I don't know. Something up in uh, the bank, up in uh, uh, Saugus or where, you know, the far country. And uh, once we landed at the rafters, it started to become serious because we were both starting to grow up. Alcoholics Anonymous stands for just that, Alcoholics Anonymous. But if you add attaining adulthood, ooh, that's a bitch. That's a bitch. So between that, you have to alter your attitudes, you know. And have you ever tried to alter your attitude? Yeah. You know that that woman's a bitch. <laughs> you know that guy over there is the biggest phony you ever ran into, you know, and you take these little mental inventories. Uh-huh. Thank God I can look around this room, and I really haven't taken anybody's inventory in here because it's none of my business, unless you ask me. Then we'll go someplace private and talk. But... The thing that Ted will never let me forget is he's got two months sobriety on me. <laughs> June 16th, August 18th, 1965. That was, it was a good thing they got you and I off the streets because we were headed for massive problems. And so at this point, I want you to welcome Ted his 50 years and my 50 years mean we start off with a bang with 100 years on this podium. I'm going to leave this over here. I'll tell you why. Hi, my name's Ted and I'm an alcoholic. Well, hi back. Oh, what a lovely group of destructive powers out there. I see it now. Can you imagine this group with a, two five cases of whiskey? Not enough. It's a good start. Anyway, I'm up, going to be up here talking about step one, two, and three. So I'm telling you what they are right now so you don't have to sit here and, and wonder what they are. Step one, I can't. Step two, he can. Step three, let him. I don't ever, <laughs> ever, E-V-E-R, ever want to have to sober up again. Why don't we just have a meeting? Ah. Well, first of all, I got to tell you how I qualified here. I qualified because I drank. I drank a lot. And I'm going to tell you what alcohol did for me. I'm not going to tell you what I think Bill said. I'm going to share my experience, my strength, and my hope. This is how I did it. 
And quite often I'll come to meetings and hear people talk about the steps, and I know I did it wrong. <laughs> I don't know how I stayed sober this long. My sobriety date is June the 16th, 1965. <laughs> I love it. I just love it. There are some things that you just, God gives you as a gift. Please do not lean on the podium. The screws cannot handle the weight. <laughs> uh, John is a screw. Did you know that? That's what they call him at the prison. He's a, that's, well, those of you who haven't been to prison, okay. I haven't either. But I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. My dad sobered up. And I went, my first AA meeting was November the 26th, 1948. My father sobered up. He left me. I was a little boy. He left me with a suitcase full of memories and the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I resented the hell out of him. I have a son in here who's third generation Alcoholics Anonymous, and I am so proud to be in the same room with him, going along the same path. It's strange how we, have, we can just look at one another and, and, and tell. It's just neat. I don't know his inventory, and I don't want to. But I know he's my son, and you saved his life. And men in this room were instrumental in him sobering up. And for that, I'm truly grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous. But let's go back to when I was a little boy, running around. The last vestige of purity in my heart at the end was the Al-Anon people who said, Teddy, have you eaten today? Teddy, do you need anything from us? Teddy, is everything going all right? And they were just so kind, they didn't care who I was or what, I'm not here. It's lost. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, and uh, that was the last vestige of purity that was left in me because my black heart, I had done stuff that I was so terribly ashamed of. I was terribly ashamed because alcohol allowed me to do things that I didn't want to do. I took a drink and the drink took a drink and then the drink took me. And th from that point on, I didn't have a choice. After the first drink, I never had a choice at all. I never surrendered to man, to God, or the devil himself. I was one of these people that was self-sufficient. I could do just about anything I wanted to do, anytime I wanted to do it. And I was a big mouth, and I had a little ass. And that little ass carried me a long way, and I got beat up a lot. Because I had a big mouth. And uh, then I grew up, and I got big enough. I always thought I was little inside. 
I was always a little boy inside. And so I was afraid. And not only was I afraid, but I was lonely. My God, the loneliness. I was the kid that my mother and dad got a divorce back in the day when they'd call it the D word. And I was always that kid that I knew that they were looking at me and they said, oh, there's that kid who comes from the broken home. And I didn't like it and I didn't know what to do about it, so I got belligerent. And hurt people hurt people. And I learned how to hurt people very early in my life. And uh, I did. I had women, I was lonely, and I wanted to make them lonely, so I'd go out with them, and then I'd find them, feel them, forget them. And that was kind of like the motto, and I didn't like that in me. I was ashamed of that. With shame and loneliness and a bottle, I could do anything I wanted to do. I was Superman. I remember when the first time I was at a dance, and it was a room about this side. All the guys were on this side. All the girls were on this side. And you finally pick out one that you want to go dance with. And you get right up to her. And you say, you, and some guy comes in and said, let's dance. And she got up and went with him. And I know they put a spotlight on me. I was in the middle of the entire room. And everybody was saying, ha, 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 Shame on him. He got rejected. And... My friend Richard said, come on, let me show you something. And we went outside, and he pulled out a little short dog, and it was a, a little thing called Four Roses. It was a fine whiskey. Oh, it was fine. It tasted, you know it was fine because it was brand new. Tasted like a roll of pennies, so you know it was good. So I took it, man, and I, he said, here, have a swig took a big old swig. <coughs> Damn, that's good. <laughs> Woo! I went back in that dance hall, man. I could dance like Michael Jackson, baby. I had that shit going on. And he wasn't even alive yet. So I'm sitting there, and alcohol did for me what I could not do for myself. Where does that, does that ring a bell? That it began to do for me what I could not do for myself. It allowed to bring down the barriers, and you and me were one. Today I have that ability without alcohol. How did I get it? What was it? I had a thing called a malady, and that malady was a physical allergy coupled with an obsession of the mind that only divine intervention could cure. And because of that, I thought, oh man, me go to that place now. I was an altar boy, I remember going down to the cellar and cleaning out the wine cellar for the priest, my cousin Tommy and I. We went down there, and there was this big cask, and he said, Ted, have you ever tasted church wine? And I said, well, little sips once in a while, but the priest always puts, has a heavy thumb, and he pours the cruet full, and he drinks it all. So there was a cup, 
and a little wooden spigot on the top, we started playing church. <laughs> the consecration, the blood of Jesus. To the blood of Christ. To the blood of Jesus Christ. Ooh. Man, I'm telling you, we spent the rest of the day, they kept looking for us. They didn't know where we were. We had, we had passed out in the cellar. But that was the, that's what alcohol did for me. Because it did for me. And he said something that was instrumental in me thinking and part of my growth. And that was, he said, Ted, wasn't that good? And I said, yes. And he was talking about the taste. I was talking about the feeling. Yes. One more time, it did for me what I could not do for myself. And that was what kept me going for over and over. And I'm looking and I say, you have to believe in God. I didn't know whether I was an agnostic. I certainly wasn't an atheist. Because I knew there was a God. He was there hanging on a cross, man. And I have to tell you a story. Because I used to think, what in the world do I want to turn my will and my life over care of a father who would allow his son to be hanged on a tree? That I don't want anything to do with. That's pain, that's misery, and that's what I can't, I can't, I can't abide. Well, here's the story. This kid goes to his father, and he says to this father, Dad, I want to go down there and tell people how much you love them and what kind of love you have for them. I've got to go down and tell them that, and I've got to heal a bunch of people in order to do that. And the old man looks at him and says, Son, you're going to go down there, and they're going to go, Hey, here he comes. They're going to spread a little... Palms in front of you, they're going to put your, yourself on a donkey, and they're going to ride you through town, and they're going to say, King, King. Two weeks later, they're going to walk your ass down the same road. You're going to have a tree on your shoulder, and they're going to be crucify him, crucify him. Then they're going to hang you on this cross, and then they're going to stab you with stuff, and they're going to not, just don't go. And he says, Father, Dad, I've got to tell you, I've got to go tell those people. I've got to. Some of them will believe. And you know how I found out that little story? Is because I wished that my son would find the same way of life that I found. I didn't know that he was going to have to go through hell to get it. And he did. So that made me understand father. The love of a father. We men in here know that love. She will carry it for nine months. 
you will carry it for a lifetime. That's just the way it is. And I get a little choked up when I think about it because I'm so grateful. I am so grateful. And that's where I was, wallowing in self-pity, wallowing in, oh my God, I can't do anything. I'm no good. I'm going to lose my job. I have a job. I've worked. I finally, booze got me through the military. It got me through college. And then it got me a job at the American Broadcasting Company. And they had a show called Shindig. And I wanted that show so bad because I was working day in court, queen for a day, and general hospital. And I wanted Shindig, man, the rock and roll, man. I am a rock and roll guy. I'm, I'm, I'm hip, slick, cool. I, I, I got it down, man. <laughs> And then we had the affiliates party. I finally got the job, and it was a 6 o'clock call. I got that job. And my friend was a bartender at the affiliates party, and that's the party where all the big shots go, and they, they're screaming for this year's uh, shows. And I go in there. I have a drink. He says, come on, have a drink. I said, no, man, I got an early call. He says, oh, come on, have a drink. I had a drink, then I looked and the sun was still up, it was like four o'clock, so I had another drink. The next thing I know that I recall, I've been doing a lot of things, but I used to smoke. And I was smoking and I put my arm, and my big deal was, I am Howard Hughes's illegitimate son. <laughs> that was and then I go, smells like branding time at the ranch. And I'm burning holes through minks, chinchilla coats, and shit. I didn't tell that story, man, till about five years ago when I had 45 years of sobriety because now I think they're all dead. <laughs> I just, and I'm telling you, man, <clears throat> so I don't know how I got home. I have no idea how I got home, but I got home. Walking up the stairs, and all of this happened in a period of time, but this is how I remember it. I don't know the chron chrono chronological events. But I do know I walked in the house, and that woman said the one word, the one sentence that drives a stake in a man's heart. You know what that is, especially if you're a blackout drinker? Where you been? How the f do you say I don't know? Just a minute. I walk into the bathroom. Oh, God, God, you know the Alki prayer. God, God, get me out of this. I'll never do it again. I'll never, never do it again. Oh, God, help me. Go over there, no towels in the bathroom. There is a God. I go out and I say, where are the towels in the bathroom? Where are the towels in the bathroom? This is my castle. I told you that I wanted to have a hot meal when I came from work at 3 in the morning. 
And she goes over, fine Christian lady. I mean, she really was refined. She walks over to the oven and she says, sit down, son of a bitch. I said, Jesus Christ, man. She's serious. I sit down. She says, eat. And there's this little charcoal briquette. A glob of something brown and 17 little BBs on the bottom of this plate. But by God, it was hot. <laughs> we Alkies, man, we have to have something go our way. And that, but anyhow, I come home and all of a sudden I find myself in this bed and this lady is cleaning me off, putting the blood and the sawdust and the muke, you know why we look when we come in off the road. And this little girl walks in, who by the way now has five years of sobriety, but she's a little bitty girl. And she says, Mommy, what's the matter with Daddy? Mommy looks and says, Baby, Daddy's very, very sick. And they, she said two words that broke my heart into a thousand pieces. She says, poor daddy. And I placed my soul on the throne of God that I would never drink again. The very next night, I'm at the dressing room pounding on that bar room. Why, why, why am I just crazy? God, if there is a God, help me. <sighs> then I get the job. Six o'clock in the morning, right? When I'm gone drunk. Come to, and I walk over, and they're sitting. There's Sylvia, my ex-wife, and there's her brother. And I look, and I say, this was my moment of we have to concede to our innermost self, the first step in recovery. I don't care what you say, and I don't care what you say. I'm an alcoholic, and I need help and it goes blank. And all I know is that I jump in the car, it's nine o'clock in the morning, I jump in the car, try to make it by 6 a.m. <laughs> I did had no problem with return to sanity, which is the second step. I had no problem knowing that I, was, I really was crazy. And I do crazy things. So the first step was that I had to concede to my innermost self that I was powerless over alcohol. And there's a little dash. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, hyphen. That hyphen indicates which means our lives had become unmanageable. Now, my life was unmanageable. I couldn't even get up to go to work. Well, the only reason I went to television and not film is that television back in the day started at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I could make that. <laughs> so I'm a, little, I'm a little weird by this time. And I can't control my drinking. And I remembered something my dad said. He said, if you don't remember anything else, 
Remember that if you ever have a problem with your drinking, that there's a place that has a solution for it, and that place is AA, because your daddy came and you saw him. See, my dad taught me how to, how to steal, because my mother would wake me and my little two little sisters up in the middle of the night and say, we're going to go look for daddy. We'd get in the truck, go looking for daddy. His truck was out in front of the Frontier Club, and she'd say, Teddy, go get your daddy. And I'd go in there. And uh, Hank Williams, old lonesome me, singing on the, on the jukebox. Sawdust floor, gaiety. And there's the familiar figure of my dad with his honey on his knee. And he says, Teddy, here's some money. Tell your mom I wasn't here. So I'd go back and tell my mom, Dad wasn't here. Daddy wasn't here. And I knew we'd have to go to another hour or two before we went home and went to bed and got some sleep. And that was my dad's alcoholism. So was I proud of Alcoholics Anonymous? I remember a guy, he was a cameraman. And I went to him. And... Uh, he kept asking me, how's your drinking coming along? Fine. Do you black out? Yeah. Do you pass out? Yeah. Do you wake up with people you wouldn't go to lunch with? Yeah. <laughs> that bare light bulb, right? And the green room and the warm body next to you. And you go, God, God, please let it be a woman this time. <laughs> Loneliness will take you there, won't it? We know that one. And so I remember him saying, the way I met him, he came up to me one day and he said he was trying to get a job. And he came up and he says, I'm trying to get a job here. And you're screwing with me and you're giving me a resentment. And I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and for me to get a resentment is for me to, to die. It's the... It, you could kill me. I said, all I heard was, hey, hey, I'd never do anything to hurt anybody in AA. I'd never do, because you guys, you're sincere in drunks trying to help drunks. And when I remembered him saying that, so I went to him and I said, Don, where's that meeting you were talking about? It's on Wilshire. Really, it's the Arlington meeting. So I went to him, and he told me, he says, I'll call you at 3 o'clock. I look at the clock. I had all the mixing. I was drinking manly drinks at that time. I was, drink I I was drinking daiquiris. <laughs> They're good. They're like Slurpees. It won't hurt you. And so I had all the mixins ready there, the ice, the blender, the, the lime, the, the rum. Oh, I loved rum. I must have been a goddamn pirate in my old days. <laughs> but the rum was there. And I look at the clock, and it's a quarter to three. I pace the floor, looking, man, God, I look back at the clock, it's ten minutes to three. 
it felt like five hours had passed. And I look up there and I say, man, it's 3 o'clock. Finally, it's 3 o'clock. And he hadn't called. And something told me, just wait. And so I waited. And sure enough, the clock about 30 seconds after that thought came, the phone rang. on cue and that phone rang and it was him if you promise an alcoholic to do something do it because their life may depend upon it we never know what drives us but we know personally inside that we're not the most patient people in the world because that's something we have to learn so I finally went to him, and I went to the meeting. There was a guy standing up there, and he was in a red sport coat. He had a white tie, a red shirt, and white pants, and white suede shoes. Man, he was cleaner than a Skeeter's Peter. He was, I mean, he was clean, son. And so, he said, I'm a pathological liar. And I said, oh my God, you don't tell that to people you're going to see, especially if you're going to borrow money from them. <laughs> but that's the only thing I identified with. I would lie if, it, if, if the truth would have gotten me out of it. I'll lie. So I had to give up that stuff too. But I came to AA and I came to that meeting. I stayed sober. I heard that you had to have a sponsor. Well, today I have a sponsor. After 50 years of sobriety, my sponsor is Clancy I from up in the sky. And uh, he knows that I'm one of his babies. He knows who I am. And he, and I go to him when I have good ideas. <laughs> and I have good ideas. But I went and asked the guy, I said, does anybody sponsor you in here? I'd heard that, because I'd been underneath the stairwell, crying my eyes out, because everybody was happy, everybody was talking, nobody was listening, it was a buzz in the room. And I was just the loneliest person on the planet, man, and I needed a drink. I went to the corner, I looked up and down, there was nothing. Six months later, I stood on that same corner. It was absolutely the first miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous because right across the street, there was a Tiny Nailers or a Dupars, one of those, and right in the corner was a sign that said cocktails, and I never saw it. So I went and I cried, and I cried that deep cry, you know, that Catharsis is what they call it. And uh, I walked in and I said, did anybody sponsor you here? He says, well, how long have you been here? And I knew I had silent radio on my head going, do not talk to this man, he's a con. He'll lie to you, he'll cheat you. And I just knew that's what it was going to say. 
And uh, they said, well, how can I help? I said, well, I need a ride home. He said, how'd you get here? Now, you can't tell this to a newcomer now. You might kill them. There's a newcomer union, and you watch out, man. You know? All you old-timers know, especially I know what I'm talking about, the newcomer union. And he said to me, how did you get here? I said, on a cab. He says, then take the cab home. I didn't have any money. So I walked from Los Feliz from, to Los Feliz from Wilshire. Now, that's a long haul, man. And something happened in that walk. I don't know what it was, but I wanted to stay sober. And I had a problem with this. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Didn't say it would, just said could. And sanity, I knew that I was insane. I knew that I did crazy ass things, man, just nuts. And so at step two, I'm sitting there, what do you mean God? And then my sponsor said, that's okay. A lot of people come in here, they don't have a God. So they look around for one. Look at the group, group of drunks, G-O-D. And he says, now you look out there. I became to believe. I came to meetings to believe that there was a power that could do something about my dilemma. That's what the second step is. Something could do something about this dilemma, about this obsession. What can take it away? What will replace it? And I come to find out that God is love. And the love of you people kept me afloat for three years. And one day, Bobby Earl came up and told me, he said, Ted, I just took the third step with, with Chuck. Really? Well, my first sponsor, Don Richards, left. I didn't know where he went, so I went to his sponsor, which was Clan, uh, Chuck. And I went to Chamberlain, and I says, I want you to be my sponsor. He says, I don't sponsor people. I'll be your friend. I'll be your spiritual advisor, but I don't sponsor. I said, I don't care what you do. I'm going to call you my sponsor. He says, well, do what you want. <laughs> and I did. And I called him. He knew who I was. And uh, Bobby said, I just took the third step with him. And I said, how'd you do it? He says, let's go do it. On the corner of Sylvan and Cedros on the lawn, he got down on his knees with me on my knees. And we said, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may take away my difficulties, that I may be, bear witness to those I would help with thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. He says, now get up. And I felt like I'd been knighted, for Christ's sake. You know? <laughs> That we, we went through it. You feel like you've been knighted, man. He says, okay. 
He put his hands on my shoulder, and he says, from this moment forward, you're where you're supposed to be doing what you're supposed to be doing at precisely the time you're supposed to be doing it. You are now one of God's little angels. And I did. I felt knighted, man. God, I can go out there and save the world. I knew the answer to everything. Ten minutes later, I forgot what the hell I'd done. <laughs> it's fleeting. But it comes back. It comes back. And that was step three. I made a decision. I made a decision. Now, there are three frogs on a log. Two of the frogs make a decision to jump into the water. How many frogs are left on the log? That's right. You've heard the story, you cheaters. For those of you who haven't heard it, three. They only made a decision. And now we get into action. What is that action? We get a pen and a, a steno pad, and they hand it to, it's the first, it's a fourth step kit. And that's a pencil and a steno pad. And now you start writing. Then you first, you, uh, that goes in, in the, the next speaker will tell you about how to take a fourth. <clears throat> but that's what they gave me. Because the first action step, we do step one by ourselves. Step two, we have to do by ourselves. Step three is willingness. This opens the door. Willingness opens the door. It's the key. And I found that willingness being there is how we do it. Because there's a combination to how we do it. The first step is honesty. That's the key to the first step. The second step is open-mindedness. That's the key to the second step. And the key to the third step is willingness. So if that be the case, honesty is the fourth step. Open-mindedness is the fifth step. Willingness is the sixth. And we go, through, we go through the numbers, all three. That's how I did it. Now, I may have done it wrong, like I tell you. But that's my experience. And the one thing I cannot deny is my experience. I can deny my opinion. But my experience is my goal. It's my gold. It lets me know from whence I came to where I am. Today, I have a wife. We've been married 38 years. The first wife, I was married 14 years and broke up a family and broke their hearts. I finally made amends to that woman when I was 32 years sober. The kids were telling her to walk. You got to walk. You got to do this because the doctor said so. 
and she had been bleeding inside and she was full of pain. I just told him. I grabbed hold of her hand and I said, you know, you guys are the very best of both of us. And I grabbed her hand and I said, now quit harping on her. She's hurting. We went outside and she walked up and I looked into her eyes, that little 19-year-old that I took out of her father's house and took her through seven years of absolute hell. And I looked into her eyes and I saw that little girl that I took out. And she looked at me and she said, Ted, thanks for caring. And I looked back at her and said, Sylvia, I never stopped. I never stopped caring. I just didn't know how to go the way you wanted. We'd split somehow. She wanted to go this way, and I wanted to go this way. And we had just grown apart. We had three children. One of them's in here. The other one is in a meeting in Marina Del Rey somewhere. And the other one, I don't know where he came from. <laughs> We really don't. He is, that's Tad. And those of you who know Tad, Tad is square to, I mean, Mr. Mr. Clean. He is, he's just an honorable kid, man. He doesn't have any problem. He eats too much, but other than that, it's prosperity. Steps one, two, and three. Right back to, I can't, he can, so let him. Because I had to come to believe that there was a power that could do and did do. Anytime I have a problem, I take one, two, and three. I become powerless over whatever it is. Money, poverty is a character defect. Just remember that. So ask God to remove the character defect, poverty. And we are in here the richest people in the world. Look at us. Look at us. There is success beyond your wildest dreams in this room. To me, because I could identify with the malcontents, they sent me to Innsbruck, Austria, where I got my first Emmy. They sent me to Montreal, where I got my second one. They sent me to uh, L.A. I stayed in L.A. for the third one. But my favorite comes with an in-concert series, which was Alice Cooper, Welcome to My Nightmare. Oh, that was so nice. And I was thinking about that last night. And uh, they gave me an assistant editor for that. And I wasn't an assistant editor. I was an editor. It doesn't say assistant nothing. So I'm going to have to ask my son, Tommy, who's, I'm going to tell on him. He's a a producer now. Can you believe that shit? He sits around doing nothing. (laughs) But he's got one of those sharp pencils. 
you know, that says, you go here, you go there, you go. He's doing nothing but scheduling. Big deal. <laughs> but I'm so proud of him. I could just scream. Yeah, good things come to happen. My present wife, like I told you, I've been with her for 38 years. We have a beautiful, beautiful relationship. I love that lady. My kids, she loves every one of them. You'll find very few women who will take man's kids. You'll find a lot of men who will take women's children, but very few women who will take men's children. And I found one who did. She is as much their mother today as she can be, as they'll let her. But I'm here as living proof that Alcoholics Anonymous works. And if you're doing stuff that's against the rules, that's all right. Pain will drive you back to the steps. When we're desperate enough, we'll either drink or get back into the steps. And just remember this. You have found a God who there is no problem that you can create that he doesn't have a solution for. Just remember that. He's a it's a loving God. He has given us everything there is. We can ask for nothing. All we have to do is thank him to reveal that to us, and it will come to us. That's what the steps promise. We were so stubborn. God was so stubborn. Huh? <laughs> I'm not going to say it, Scott. <laughs> All I know is this, is that God has put some men in my life that I'm so very, very tickled to have in my life. They're beautiful men. They are paragons of virtue. <laughs> Horseshit. But they are. They truly are. They live a program. And you know something? I'm just about tired of barking at y'all. You see, because bottom line is that I don't ever, ever, E-V-E-R, ever want to have to sober up again because it's a whole lot easier to stay sober than it is to get sober. And if you don't believe it, talk to some of these retreads. They'll tell you for sure. God bless you. And, oh, Chicago? We love you. We love you. Thanks for being here, man. God bless you all. Have a great rest of the day.